Wouldn't it be great if you could earn the CEUs you need by listening to a podcast? Well, now you can. We have partnered with speechpathology.com to offer CEUs on select autism outreach podcasts like this one. Just head over to speechpathology.com and sign up to enjoy unlimited access for a full year for $99. That's unlimited 24-7 access to hundreds of online courses offered for ASHA CEUs, including live webinars, on-demand videos, audio, and text courses, plus select autism outreach podcasts for just $99 a year. Finally, earning CEUs is as easy and stress-free as listening to your favorite podcast. Just visit speechpathology.com and use promo code AUTISM at checkout. That's speechpathology.com, promo code AUTISM to get started today. I had an amazing conversation today with Laura Smith. She is a speech language pathologist and she specializes in the area of apraxia. She talks about the early signs and characteristics of apraxia. She also talks about resources for speech therapists and parents. She shares a lot of really amazing resources, some that I haven't checked out yet that I'm really excited to. And she also shares with us the journey of having a child, her own child, diagnosed with apraxia and what that looked like. So she talks about the testing, the assessment, the diagnosis, intervention, how her daughter is doing now. And it's just such a valuable episode. Laura is Apraxia Kids Recognized for Advanced Training and Clinical Expertise in Childhood Apraxia Speech. And she's completed the Prompt Level 1 Training and the Kaufman Speech to Language Protocol. She is the clinical director and owner of A Mile High Speech Therapy, specializing in childhood speech and language disorders. She's lectured throughout the United States on childhood apraxia of speech and related issues. And she's committed to raising and spreading CAS awareness following her own daughter's diagnosis of CAS and dyspraxia. She's also the author of Overcoming Apraxia, coordinated the Denver Apraxia Walk, and writes for various publications, including the ASHA Wire blog. She has such a wealth of information that she shares from the parent side of things, from the professional level of expertise that she has. And this is definitely an episode that you you don't want to miss. Let's get started. You're listening to Autism Outreach Podcast, a podcast full of ready-to-use strategies to help those with autism strengthen their communication skills. Here's your host, Rose Griffin of ABA Speech, a speech therapist and board-certified behavior analyst who shares tips you can use in your next therapy session. All right, thanks for joining us on episode 24 of the Autism Outreach Podcast. My name is Rose Griffin. I am here to help you learn strategies you can use in your therapy sessions tomorrow to help your students. And today we have with us Laura Smith. Thanks so much for joining us, Laura. It's nice to have you on. Hi, thanks for having me. And I think I found out about Laura really just recently because I think you did a collaboration with Carrie Ebert, who we had on one of the very first episodes of Autism Outreach. Really love all of her work that she shares with us. And so I know that you uh, professionally and personally have apraxia is something that has touched your life in many ways. And I get a lot of questions from parents. Actually, I was just checking an email from a mom who lives in another country who has a very young child who is not yet talking and 
has some characteristics that might seem like apraxia and she's very worried. And so I wanted to make sure this will be our first episode just about apraxia, which I think is going to be really, really instrumental for anybody who's listening that is helping autistic students or anybody who has complex communication disorders. And so I want you to tell us a little bit about you and your journey kind of professionally, personally. I know we're going to talk about your daughter's diagnosis and what that journey was like. So can you tell us a little bit about you and kind of what your work is based in and all those good things? Sure. Yeah. So my name is uh, Laura Smith and uh, my journey kind of started... I was a speech language pathologist before my children were born and I worked in the school setting mostly, mostly in elementary education and severe needs programs was kind of my specialty. But my daughter was born and wasn't developing. I just knew she was falling behind in a lot of her milestones. And so anyways, my journey kind of started with there. And from there, it just launched me into obsessively taking every training I could on apraxia and starting my own private practice in Denver, um, a mile high speech therapy where we specialize in childhood apraxia speech, writing a book, overcoming apraxia. coordinated five apraxia walks. So I would say for the last decade, apraxia is like my whole life professionally and personally. So yeah, I'm excited to be here. It is Apraxia Awareness Month. Love that you're doing it this month. Yes, May is Apraxia Awareness Month. May 14th is Apraxia Awareness Day. And so it's so great that you're getting awareness out there to your followers. That's amazing. I didn't know that apraxia, there was an apraxia awareness month. So that's really cool. We're taping this in May. This will air in June, but that's really great to know. And I'm sure there, there might be more information. I know Laura is actually on social media quite a bit like I am. I talk about social media here on the show a lot and she is on TikTok. So, you know, if you haven't downloaded that app, come on yeah. over. You, you can find information about anything. I keep telling my mom, like who's in her 80s, like you can find anything like gardening videos, right? There's Laura's talking about apraxia. I'm talking about speech therapy and ABA. There's a lot of things going on over there on TikTok. So <laughs> I love seeing those videos. Um, well, that's really amazing. So so can you tell us a little bit about or a lot about your your diagnosis of your daughter and kind of, you know, what that looked like? I think one of the reasons kind of selfishly I like to have parents on the podcast is to talk about your parent journey. Um, and oftentimes the parents that I have on are also professionals or their child got diagnosed with something and then they became professionals in the field too. It kind of works both ways. But I think as a public school speech therapist, there's all these questions and conversations I want to have with parents. But you know, in a public school, we're kind of limited in what we can ask and what we can say. That's what's nice about having a private practice, right? Because it's a different type of relationship. So I'm excited to have you on to tell us kind of, (laughs) you know, like how did that work? How many years were you practicing as a speech therapist? And I'm sure that that is is a journey that you're going to share with us today. So can you talk to us about your daughter's um, diagnosis? Yeah, I'd love to. So yeah, like I said, I worked in the schools for um, around 10 years before she was actually diagnosed. And again, mostly just elementary education. So I didn't have experience in early intervention. I did not have, you know, I'd even treated apraxia in the schools. I I had taken trainings before then from apraxia experts to be able to treat some kids I had in the schools with apraxia. But, you know, a child in the schools cognitively looks a lot different than a baby or a toddler that you're treating. So, you know, you're not going to be using the same strategies you'd use with an elementary school student. And you might not even have the same signs and symptoms like you would see in an elementary school student. So really, 
I just knew that she was behind and Ashlyn was always globally behind her with all of her milestones. So she crawled late, walked late, everything, you know, feeding from feeding to dressing to all of those things, speech being one of them. I just really felt like she had cerebral palsy actually. Cause again, I worked in the severe needs programs in the schools and there were just a lot of signs to me. Like she had these very tight toes, like we called them ballerina toes. And that's something you see with cerebral palsy. Uh, kind of across the board, regardless of like, you know, when I worked in the severe needs program. So that to me stuck out and you couldn't flex them. And, and, there, and then just low tone and drooling and just a lot of these other things. So anyway, pride or whatever have you prevented me from seeking help. <laughs> I was like, well, what are they going to do that I can't? I know how to do PT. I worked alongside PTs doing speech therapy in the school. So, you know, the, the pediatrician was like, yeah, get in the bathtub and, you know, rub out, like, you know, kind of soften her her ankles and and stretch out. And I did. And I did it successfully. So then I was like, see, I got this. And it's just such a wrong attitude to have, by the way. Please, Mm -hmm. if you're listening to this, get someone to help you. Get another pair of eyes. It hurts nothing and it only could potentially help. So anyways, I'm definitely not recommending this route. But uh, then same with speech. So then speech I knew was delayed. And I was like, okay, yeah, if it's cerebral palsy, I'm going to do language stimulation. And I did it with her practically every night from 18 months to almost 36 months and or every day. And you can't really turn off being a speech therapist, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) And so, yeah, I mean, and she just made such minimal progress. Like I didn't understand I'm doing all of these things. I'm like even buying videos and books and going to early intervention trainings. Like, do I not know what I'm doing? Like, I know what I'm doing. Like, why isn't this working? And it was just a very awful time of life for me, honestly, because then my baby isn't talking and I felt like I was helping kids in school and I wasn't even helping the most important child in my life right now. Mm -hmm. So anyway... That all being said, at around two, you know, almost three years, I knew she would qualify for an IEP. So that's when I took her into child find. And I am so grateful because, as you know, in the public agencies, they, I don't want to say they tell us specifically not to tell someone their child has apraxia, but it's like a known thing that you're not going to tell a parent that they have this diagnosis, at least for me when I worked Mm -hmm. in the school districts, because they perceive it being a medical diagnosis and we are educational diagnosticians. Is that the true where you're at? Yeah, you know, I've had parents now in the school, I do tend to work with middle school and high school age students. And I do work with students who might be diagnosed with apraxia if they went to a private practice and somebody was doing something specific. But what I've always told parents at that age level, and I tend to work on verbal speech because I think it's very empowering for kids to use their voice, even if that's not their main form of communication. But what I Mm -hmm. have told parents is I'm really working with the characteristics of how your student is verbally communicating. And so that's kind of how I've worked on it. Nobody ever told me, don't say it's apraxia. But honestly, I feel like I'm not an expert in that area. I'm not going to diagnose somebody in that area. I can definitely treat somebody who has that sure, diagnosis, right, right. but but I'm not going to call it that. So I guess maybe a lot of people feel that way, that it's not something that we would per se label, but that does get into private versus the educational model. So good point about that. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Well, what I'm thankful for though, is this early intervention SLP who um, evaluated Ashlyn was kind of in the business for a while. (laughs) I would say she probably had at least 30 years of experience. And I'm just so grateful to her that she was so straight with me. And, you know, she spent some time with her, does her eval, comes back to me and she was like, Laura, this is apraxia. 
And it just hit me like a freight train. Like I can't even tell you, like I'm grateful for it. So don't get me wrong. I'm so grateful. She was just that straightforward and honest, but I just wasn't seeing it. Like I, my whole focus was on speech delay related to potentially CP and some global stuff going on. Mm -hmm. And when she said that to me, I think it hit me like a freight train because I instantly knew it was true. Like the minute she said it, I was like, oh my gosh, like, how did I miss this? And then, and then I just thought about long-term implications and how it's a, I mean, CP is too, but for some reason, just a lifelong neurological speech disorder. And I, will she ever talk to me? Will my baby ever say my name? Like, I I really don't remember anything else that woman told me or anyone else for that matter after that sentence. So I do remember being in a haze and like holding it together long enough to make it to the car, get Ashlyn buckled in. And at the time, Ashlyn only had one word, which was hi, but she had mastered it with a variety of intonations. So she knew how to say hi to gain someone's attention. She knew how to say hi to questions. She knew how to say hi, how to call all with her intonation, right? Those super segmentals. And I remember that my train of thought was broken as I was putting her in the car seat because she said the saddest little, hi. (laughs) And I know. And I was like, oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's hard. So were you, was it like the initial evaluation where that speech therapist said that? Or was it when she just did the, oh, it was the initial evaluation. That's She told me right away. That's really hard. You know, I work with high school age students and I worked one year just preschool and I'm starting to work in my private practice with a lot of younger students. But I remember how emotionally charged, I say high school meetings feel emotionally charged because parents are thinking again, what is the plan for the uh, the forever plan? But then at preschool, those meetings are very emotionally charged. I mean, it's just very, even you being a speech therapist, thinking maybe one thing, then it's something different. It's just, that's gotta be, Mm -hmm. that's gotta be really a lot to, to take in and, yeah, it is very emotional. Like I, I think that that's like when I, I talk to college students a lot because my, of my book, it gets assigned to some classes, mm-hmm. which is nice. So I can go in and talk to the, them and just kind of get them before. And a question that they always ask me is like, well, cause I did not know parents were this devastated over a diagnosis when I was a speech therapist before Ashton. Like I just did not. I remember I had a mentor who told me, remember this is someone's perfect baby. And she would always remind me of that. And I would be like, yeah. Like, I know, (laughs) but like, I think what she was now that I've gone through this experience, I think what she was trying to impart to me was this is someone's perfect baby and any diagnosis like this is absolutely devastating, even if it's a speech delay, because any diagnosis or anything that is perceived as wrong with your child is very hard to hear. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, so, and I think that's I think yeah. that's good to share because sometimes I spend a lot of time on social media and I think some parents will go on social media and maybe they don't even have a platform where they're sharing about the diagnosis, but they might join a Facebook group, maybe about autism. You know, I'm more in the autism area and they may share some of these feelings about feeling, you know, what you said you were feeling. And then sometimes online parents get mean comments about feeling yeah. that way. Yes, so, they do. And it that's hard. So, you know, maybe don't go to it. I just did a, <laughs> I just, I know, seriously. And I literally, I just did a, um, a talk for speech pathology online or speechpathology.com yeah. and for CEUs. And it was with Jenya Uzini Siegel, who is a researcher with CAS, particular interest in CAS and the whole child. And we did a whole talk on grief related to a diagnosis with research based articles. So just to reaffirm to anyone out there, yes, I know sometimes you get, really mean comments on social media for saying that you were sad and you grieved. Research shows it's normal. And to 
any parent out there, you cannot help the way you feel. Feelings are feelings. And it's how we deal with them. And sometimes talking to other people who feel the same way is helpful. So anyway... Yeah, Ooh, that, that sounds like a good. There. That sounds like a good talk. I have a membership for that. I do a lot of talks for them too. So, oh, I have to look for that one. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah, that's it was good. really fun, and I feel like important. And it was related to CAS, but I feel like parents with kids who have autism get more mean comments than parents of kids with CAS. So, definitely check that out. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Um, I am going to remember yeah. to take that. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. So anyway, uh, that's kind of uh, how her, how the diagnosis works. And, you know, from there, there's stages and I would say, you know, grief ebbs and flows. So sometimes it'll just hit me. But for the most part, you know, once you have a diagnosis, you have a, you can have a plan now, you know, and so that's what it really opens up for you. So absolutely. So then, so she, you got that initial diagnosis. Was she about three or three, a little older three. than three. She was okay. 211 if you want to be a speech. Oh, good for you. Yes, because <laughs> here in the United States, you know, once a child is approaching their third birthday, then the public school district, it's their responsibility to do assessments. And from those assessments, we can give a diagnosis and have a plan for intervention. So then what did um, what did that look like once you got the diagnosis? Then what did that mean for you and your family and the, the intervention plan? What did that look like? Sure. So, I mean, really what what happened is, you know, therapy for apraxia, especially if in the early stages or if it's severe to profound, require like research shows three to five times a week is appropriate in the beginning stages. You won't always have to keep that frequency up. But I knew that was going to be more working in the schools myself than the schools could provide. And honestly, I could have fought the schools, but it wasn't worth my fight. Like my energy, I felt was better uh, spent on getting her private help. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, unfortunately, it was like fortunate and unfortunate. I had had a baby like right around July and she was diagnosed in September. And so I had maternity leave for him that I had saved up. And so I just spent my whole maternity leave on her speech therapy and went back to work. <laughs> so it was like fortunate and not fortunate, but I did find a private therapist and we started speech therapy from there. And I just remember thinking when I was watching her do therapy, like, oh my gosh, like just all these little tweaks to the way I do therapy now, I wasn't doing. So it was just really, um, it's just really mind blowing to me. And I just couldn't, I actually was angry that I was never taught this. Like, I don't understand why I wasn't taught principles of motor learning. I had a bachelor degree, a master degree, my clinicals, you spend so much time in graduate school research articles and I'd never seen therapy that approached a speech sound disorder using the principles of motor learning. So let me ask you, because I get asked this a lot too. So how did you find that provider? Was that a private provider in your area? Was that a person? Because I know you talked about apraxia kids. I'm actually curious what how you get recognized as being an expert in that area, because I know Apraxia Kids is this amazing website and resource, and I know you could speak to that. But how do parents find somebody? Like, did you find somebody through that website? Or how did you find somebody that specialized in apraxia? What did that look like for you? Because I know a lot of parents are nervous about finding the right provider. Yeah. So at the time, Apraxia Kids did not have that feature on their website. But what the Apraxia Kids does have is a bunch of Facebook groups. So I forget what that they they at the time they were called Cassana. So I forget what the Apraxia Kids Colorado group is called. But I mean, essentially, like in my state, there's like Apraxia Kids Colorado, there's Apraxia Kids Ohio, where you're at, or, mm -hmm. you know, there's going to be a Facebook group in all of the 50 states. And so mm -hmm. I went into that, I joined that group. And then I at, they had a list of resources actually in that group of therapists who um, specialized in Apraxia or said they did at least. And then I asked the group for recommendations and who people were seeing in my area that they were happy with. 
And that's how I found someone. That is one way to find them. What I recommend to people is going to Apraxia Kids, find a therapist tab, and you can search in your area. Certainly, like, you know, prompt is a type of therapy for Apraxia that is based on principles of motor learning too and has some decent research behind it. Not one of the highest levels right now, but some decent research behind it. And they have a website too. I, it's not very user-friendly to try and find a therapist, but okay. if someone took prompt therapy, it's expensive. So if okay. a therapist decided to take prompt, they definitely have some vested interest in knowing about apraxia. So, I mean, I would, you know, maybe direct people there. And okay. the other thing I do, which is the main thing that I tell parents, if neither one of those work, is I wrote an article. I have a website called SLPMommyofApraxia.com. And on it, I have top 10 questions to ask your SP to make sure they're competent in CAS. And if you go down this list, and, and this is why I wrote it, and it makes me sad, but also happy when a parent calls me last week or emails me and she says, I did. I called up this therapist. She And she had said, oh, yeah, I, I treat apraxia. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a specialist. I, I, I specialist. I have my C's. Mm -hmm. And then she's like, as I started asking her the questions, she was falling apart more and more and more until finally by the end, she was like, well, I mean, I don't really have that much experience with apraxia. I've treated one child. And it was like, at the same time, I was happy for the parent that she found out. But at the other time, it's like, oh, why do parents have to go through this? Yeah, it's got to be so overwhelming. And I know that they don't want to feel like they're wasting their money or their child's time to not see progress. And all those things are so scary. What about families that are living abroad? Are there for apraxia kids? Do you think that there's help for families that are living abroad? Because I know we have some parents that might be listening. And every country is different. Like we're offering teletherapy now in 11 states and abroad. But I always say based on your country, because some countries are like, sure, whatever, teletherapy, and then others have very strict rules. So do you know if Apraxia Kids has anything like that? Or I'm just curious. I don't I don't think they have an international outreach in that sense. But what I do know is like in Brazil, for example, there is an Apraxia Brazil that a lot of people from South America find helpful. So okay. um, I've spoken for them too. I mean, Australia has amazing researchers. Trisha McCabe is out there and her team. They're amazing. So I do feel like it, it does vary from like country to country, but I, I like you appreciate social media for the value it brings for yes. sharing good knowledge and good information to people, you know, and that's my mission too, is every child with apraxia worldwide gets the help they need. Yeah, I love that. And I love the idea that you have that blog because I wanted to do something really similar for people who need want somebody who's like a speech therapist who understands applied behavior analysis because some students who are autistic are going to be getting those services. And so I'm going to write some type of blog that's like <laughs> questions to ask your provider, you know, things like that. Yeah, so just to make sure do it. that the services are collaborative because I just, I work with a lot of preschool parents who are just getting diagnosis and they they just have so many questions and it's just got to be really overwhelming. So trying to help parents navigate that time, because I can't imagine, you know, you're thinking like, I have to get my child all these services and where do I even start? So that's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome to know you have that as a resource. So then your daughter, so then she was getting, did you do the public school therapy and private? Is that what you decided to do when she was diagnosed? Yeah. Yep. We did both. And then we had a back and forth book that we coordinated between school speech and private speech. Oh, that's awesome. That's the key is that collaboration. 
Like I am big on Google, shared Google documents. So we do that with all of our our teletherapy clients. And then sometimes we'll share it with like ABA providers because it's more autism. And, you know, it seems like so simplistic, but that is so powerful to make sure everybody is on the same page with things. And then, you know, how is the student doing? And what are you working on? And oh, that's really great. So then, so how old is your daughter? How old is your daughter now? So she's 11 now. She's 11 and a half. (laughs) And she actually went on to get a slew of other diagnoses. And we're talking about CAS, but she has a joke like now, like every speech and language disorder we learned about in school. (laughs) Like she has dysarthria, oral apraxia, verbal apraxia, developmental language disorder. But if you follow my Instagram or Facebook, especially, I'll post videos of her. I just post, well, TikTok now. I'm I, I just joined though. So I caution you guys, I'm a newbie. But I just posted a video of her singing and she, yeah, like she's doing great. She's very talkative and everyone can understand her. She's 99% intelligible. Oh, that's amazing. I love that. Very cool. Well, thank you for sharing that with (laughs) us. I know that's important for people, you know, to hear that journey. So what are some of the early signs of apraxia? If there's people that are listening or providers and they're thinking like, oh, this could be one thing. It could be something different. What are some early signs of apraxia or characteristics? Yeah. So we initially, um, a big one is the lack of babbling. So this is not Mm -hmm. something I felt like I was taught in graduate school either. Mm -hmm. Like these parents will report that they have a very quiet baby. And I I remember being at a funeral for a friend's mother and Ashlyn was nine months and never made a peep and sat on my lap and was perfect. And I was like, such a good baby. She's so amazing. No, she was praxic. (laughs) That's why she wasn't babbling. So very, very important that kids at six months, we usually see it's called, you know, canonical or reduplicate babbling where they're like mum, 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 mum. and by nine months they have variegated where they're kind of combining the sounds together maybe like mada bada or something like that um she had neither so lots of cooing lots of vowels we hear a lot of vowel sounds early on lack of um consonants uh all those things are kind of early characteristics in your like infant toddler Mm-hmm. Um, definitely a lack of a word by first, by age one. Ashlyn did have a word by age one though, but mm-hmm. is symptomatic. And then this phenomenon that Ashlyn also had called pop-out words. Right. So these are words that you might've heard the child say once or twice, or maybe even had for a week. And then they went away and they didn't hear them again, or you couldn't get them to say it again. So that's frequently reported like, yeah, he used to say this all the time and now we can't get him to say it. Or words will morph. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, to some extent, when kids are developing language, you don't expect them to be consistent in every word they say with 100% accuracy as they're just developing language. However, when they were saying, you know, like, opa for open for four, you know, four months, and then all of a sudden it morphed into opo, that is odd. That is not something typically developing children do. That is a very motor planning-ish problem. And the reason being because apraxia, as opposed to other speech sound disorders, is a problem with planning and programming the movements for speech. So as they develop more words, they might have developed a different movement sequence pattern and that started to affect their other words. So anyway, I mean, that I could go into detail about that. But long story short, pop out words. And then another thing that I see reported is a go-to sound. So Ashen's was da. It was a D. And so she was like, a da, a da, 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 da. It was like all Ds, all Ds, all the time. I just evaluated a kid whose was Inga. Inga. Can you believe it? The is actually a very difficult sound. If you know speech sound development, you get that sound later. And that was his first sound. And that was his go-to sound. And everything was nga. 
Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Really. Yeah. These are good. And I'm glad you talked about uh, what apraxia is. If we have parents that are listening or like, I've heard that word and you know, my child isn't talking a lot. Like what, you know, is this something I should be concerned about? So what do you, so what are your recommendations as far as, and I understand from a specialist standpoint, like if we're a school-based therapist and we are seeing a student who has, or just clinic-based, right? Because you're saying like, just kind of like with what I do, it's like, I don't think we learn this in graduate school. Like, you know, so for me, it's like, you know, the students who maybe have uh, behavioral barriers that are barriers to their therapy and learning. I'm like, mm. yeah, they didn't go over this. I missed that class, <laughs> you know? So everything that I've learned in my niche area has been because of my own desire and motivation to help students that are hard to help. But I know, you know, as a school-based therapist, we're seeing all different types of students or clinic-based, right? Like you had that nice checklist where the parents were asking. So what, where, where do we start if we're speech therapists and we like, what are some good resources or what would just be some good assessments? Kind of what is your therapeutic plan? I'm sure your therapeutic plan is obviously going to be really robust, intense, you know, but where could we get started <laughs> if we're new to helping students that present with these characteristics? Yeah. So I actually have a blog post on on that too. I have a top 10 or top 12 resources for SLPs treating childhood apraxia of speech. And it's so hard to say because I do have so much training now, but I can tell you Apraxia Kids has on-demand webinars and they have articles on almost everything. And when I was a for a newbie, even like coming out of school and got my first kid with a praxy on my caseload, I downloaded like seven articles and took a training from Dr. Stockwell. I'd, and now with everything being telehealth or a lot of things being online, you can find so many webinars like that. So Apraxia Kids has great resources. You can get free CEUs for learning DTTC, which is like one of the top, <laughs> top approaches for apraxia that is in the research that has great research behind it. You can get that from out of Dallas or out of Texas. Is, is it but Edith Strand? Is yeah. that the yep. name? Okay. Yeah, the queen. Yes. Dr. Strand. I, I totally enrolled in that last year. I'm not sure I got through every module, but it was very interesting. <laughs> it's 10 hours. I mean, it's very intensive and I think it was free. So that's really Yeah, it good. is free and you get CEUs. So um, right. that is just an amazing resource for... Oh, it's Child Apraxia Treatment. That's what it is. It's a private nonprofit that is offering that to SLPs. So okay. definitely recommend that. Apraxia Kids has a conference every July. Right. And so you can hear the top experts really in the world speak mm-hmm. at that conference on various topics. So there is a lot of information if you're looking for it. Okay. That's really good to know because I think sometimes we get overwhelmed. You know, like I know a couple years ago I had, well, this is a long time ago now, but I had some students in a public school who were stutterers and that was pretty low incidence. Like I really hadn't treated that many students who I took the course just like we do in school, but it's one thing to treat (laughs) somebody else. So I really, I dug way deep. I did all the speechpathology.com courses. I heard Scott Yaris talk at a conference and it just gives you that good start to want to learn more. And so at Apraxia Kids, so there's art, are there articles that anybody can download that are like free access articles about Apraxia and things like that? Yeah, their website is full of them, full, okay. full of free articles. So And the other thing that I would point people to is just to learn the basics of motor learning. Dr. Edwin Moss has, I think it's still up there, but he's got a webinar on principles of motor learning and how we can kind of relate them to speech. And that kind of sets the basis for any approach that you use. So, Hmm. you know, at elementary school level, it's a little different because kids have a lot of language usually at that point. By that Mm -hmm. point, hopefully Uh, they might not, but hopefully they do. And so it is helpful to know (laughs) just the basic principles because you might even be able to 
modify, you know, a Fano approach to an apraxia approach if you have an underlying understanding of the principles of motor learning. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I want to look that up. I'm going to look that up. That sounds like really good information. <laughs> you know, the one thing I wanted to point out that I thought was interesting that you said, I'm circling back, but when you said your your daughter was in private therapy, that you were watching the therapist do some of the therapy. So were you, because I think a lot of times parents are getting private speech and they're not sure maybe what's happening in speech therapy. And maybe some speech therapists have a different idea of, you know, the parents are in the room, the parents are in the waiting room and obviously it's individualized. But can you just touch on that really quickly? Because I think that's really important for parents. Like what's happening in therapy should not be like a mystery. It should be very straightforward, whether that means that you're completely in the room and you're with your child. And I mean, I know when I'm talking with parents and it ebbs and flows, but I have one private client now that I first went to see him and he hid by his mom. And, you know, now mom works from home so I can go in the home and I work with him. And sometimes she pops in and it's okay. And we talk at the end. And that's more of a traditional type of speech therapy. But can you talk to me a little bit about that and kind of what that looked like, your level of participation, I guess, as a parent for that those early intervention type sessions? Well, in that particular case, it wasn't going to be an option for me not to go in. If you were yeah. going to have my child in a room by yourself, I was right. going to be there, especially yeah. a child who's nonverbal. So right. anyone I saw, like, I guess I was just pushy that way. It was just yeah. assumed I would be in the room. So however, I was pretty hands-off just because I was wanting the therapist to be the kind of like the leader and the coach in the room, you know, and and have control. So that's how that looks. I will tell you now that, well, now everything's different because of telehealth, but when I was in my office doing yeah. speech therapy, every single parent or any caregiver in the child's life is always welcome in the room at any time for any reason without um, any planning needed on the parent's part. Because if a therapist really knows what they're doing, and they're right. really confident with what they're doing, you are not going to care who is in the room watching you. Right. And the other thing is, is that so then I will get therapists who say, oh, no, like I'm very comfortable treating apraxia, but you know, the, the kid just has so many behaviors when they're in the room. So the session just goes so much better when the parents aren't there. And at least for me, and I do have some kids who have a, you know, a co-diagnosis of autism and apraxia, and certainly uh-huh. autism can, you know, come with more behaviors, right. as you mentioned. But I still find that the bang I get, the long-term bang from having the parents know what I'm doing and mm-hmm. how I'm cueing and what my cues are and what my targets are and what the languages I use to provide feedback, like all of that verbiage, the bang I get long term is way better than just a really good, clean, quick 30 minute session and you're out of my office and it went smooth because the parents have no idea really what, even if I verbally tell them what happened, like, yeah, we worked on these targets and this is what I said and this is how I cued. I mean, it's just so different when you get to see it. When you get to see it in action, you can practice it in action. And in my office, parents are always active if they want to be. I encourage parents to be actively involved with me. That's good because I think that's one thing that parents just the parents I've talked to. And I don't know, it seems like a lot of the people that actually help me for my business always, they, they've had a child on an IEP, like the whole range of things, you know, and then they'll share with me kind of that journey and, oh, so overwhelming or I didn't know. You know, I think sometimes parents just aren't sure. Like, can I advocate? Because I'm pretty, like my maiden name's Donatelli. So I'm pretty pushy, like <laughs> characteristically, you know, like if I want to get something done or if there needs to be a customer service call, like I always do all that for my husband because I kind of have that personality too. That's why I like you. But anyway, you know, so I understand you were like, nope. 
I'm going to be in there. My child is not yeah, verbal at this yeah. point. Like she's very small. <laughs> like I'm going to be in there. So, but I think parents should know that if they feel like they want to be in there and that's really important because I always say what happens in the therapy room does not stay in the therapy room. And for me with older <laughs> right. students, I really don't even see a lot of students in the therapy room unless it's something like very specialized, like stuttering or selective mutism or something like that. Because therapy needs sure. to happen in the generalized environment at that point. But that's good for parents to know. Like you need to advocate like this should, you should be in there. You should know what's going on. Yeah. Um, and I think it's important too, Laura, just to point out that if you do have any students who have autism or autistic, having a speech therapist as part of the, you know, the therapeutic team is absolutely oh, yes. essential please, please, because, please. you know, you're talking about things with apraxia that are, you're very, this is your level of expertise, you know, and th- just other providers are not going to be able to provide that level of expertise. So speech therapists just have such a breadth of information on speech sound development, but you have such an area in this apraxia. You know, I think it's very important for parents to know that there's a continuum, right? We all go out, we get our master's yes. degree, we are trying our best when we know better, we'll do better. But I think it's yes. important for parents to know like, hey, there are people that really specialize in this. Um, and a speech therapist is such an important part of the team. And I love how you're talking about collaborating with the parents because sometimes students who have more complex needs might have other providers. So I'm sure that maybe you do collaboration with them too, but that it's important. Oh, all the time. That's good. I mean, in my practice, I have, I collaborate with AAC experts. So I have a decent amount of experience with AAC because I as I said, I I, right. spe- I worked in the severe needs program. So mm-hmm. however, because I switched my whole practice to more being a verbal apraxia model, I can't do both. I either need to focus on speech or I need to focus on teaching them AAC. And in the perfect world, which I'm in, in private practice, I can have an AAC, AAC expert right alongside of me and they go to them two days a week and maybe me three days a week. Or, right. you know, um, they go to them one day a week and me too. I like however it works. And then we all collaborate together on that. Or um, definitely I... I collaborate with ABAs. I mean, I love like my ABA therapist and and I've even had ABA people refer children to me because collaboration is so important. And then, you know, we can make sure they're they're cueing and doing, especially with apraxia. This is a speech sound disorder. You guys, you can screw up. I'm just going to... Speech therapists screw it up. Like, And the thing is, is what I was talking about before is those motor... It's planning and programming the movements for the sounds. If you're so focused on sounds and you don't understand how to plan, help the child plan program movements. Right. That alone, if you don't know how to do that, you should probably not be running the treatment plan for apraxia. <laughs> yeah. Or you and, need to hit up yeah. you need to hit up all these resources. Please visit Lori's yeah. website. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Course, hit up the resources. Go to apraxia yeah. kids. But there it sounds like because I feel like in graduate school we didn't have a specific a class on apraxia. No, so I feel like it's one I of those 14 things. 14 loose leaf papers. Right. So you really this is an area I think a lot of people need to to learn more about, you know, because you're right. If you're not doing it the right way, you might be targeting the wrong things in intervention and then you're not going to be helping. You might actually be hindering, no. you know, things like yeah, that. Yeah, so, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So many great resources today, Laura. It's great to talk with you. Where can people find out more about you and your work? So I'm everywhere if you just search SLP Mommy of Apraxia. So I have my website, SLPMommyofApraxia.com. I'm on Instagram under that name, Facebook, YouTube, Twitter. I don't do as much with Twitter, but I'm there. TikTok, LinkedIn. It's just all SLP Mommy of Apraxia. I do okay. have my book, Overcoming Apraxia. And it is my daughter's story, but I tried to pack it full, full of resources and professional definitions and research-based recommendations for you to go or to go to or to find out more. 
So amazing. That's awesome. And you know, I always end kind of with this final question. Um, What is the most important piece of advice that you would want to pass along to parents or professionals about supporting learners who have apraxia? It's such a good question and it's so important. I think that the piece of advice is to recognize this is a lifelong neurological disorder. When parents get this diagnosis, they think long-term immediately. And early intervention and appropriate intervention, you know, promotes the best outcomes as adults because we do literally by the intervention we're providing early on when the brain is at it as it is at its most plastic. Mm-hmm. Not saying you can't make progress later on. Absolutely can't. I'm just saying, you know, best outcomes equal be- like good intervention early on. So it is important to advocate for your kid. Don't be scared to advocate. Don't be scared to speak up. Don't be scared to ask questions. And SLPs just know that this is someone's baby. And as my mentor said, and what that means is that, you know, the diagnosis is very hard and every parent just wants the best future that they can give their child. And we need you. We need you as the SLP to do the very best that you can. And to admit when you don't know, it's okay. I would rather, we would rather as parents have an SLP say, I don't know, but I am going to go to bat for you and find out than to have someone pretend they treat it Mm -hmm. and get asked 10 questions and have to admit that they don't know much about it. Like that is not the way to go. So let's just all be open. Let's all have a growth mindset. Let's all be willing to learn and advocate. And that would be my advice. I love that. I love that. And I think a lot of people are going to want to learn more and check out some of these resources and your resources that you mentioned. So thanks so much for joining us today. Um, Make sure to check the show notes for resources we discussed. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And if you haven't done so already, make sure to hit subscribe and write a review. Remember to keep things fun and functional and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Autism Outreach. If you enjoyed the show today, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode full of actionable strategies you can use in your therapy room. Write a review too. That would mean so much to me. I always love hearing from you. Have a specific topic that you want included on a future show? Reach out over on Instagram, ABA Speech by Rose, or visit me at www.abaspeech.org.